Hello, and welcome to Leading Ladies, Past, Present, and Future, an interview podcast produced by Heap Entertainment that champions the stories and careers of women in entrepreneurship and entertainment. I'm Antoinette Westcott, your host, here with my co-host, Renee L. Page. Hello. (laughs) On our show, we speak to women who have trailblazed a path and carved out a space for themselves within industries that don't traditionally afford them a seat at the table. Through these conversations, we hope to inspire listeners like you to pursue the careers you want while making sure you have the right resources and advice for you to succeed. This week, we have joining us Emma Orm. Hi, Emma. Welcome. Hi, Emma. (laughs) Emma is a Brooklyn-based... Oh, awesome. Well, we're glad to have you. Yes. Uh, So Emma is a Brooklyn-based producer and performer with a focus in theatrical work. She is a new producing director of Hypocrite Productions, where she is producing Danny Pudi's autobiographical film, Running. She has previously served as the lead director or producer on the podcast, Pleasure Machine, which we need to find out more about. The bold associate producer, Northern Stage, a video producer for New York Times and the documentary, The Cleo, Kleptocrats, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the artistic producer of Vox Lab and live artist residency at Dartmouth College. Wow, wow. such a resume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to start off with some rapid fire questions. So yeah, just whatever comes to the top of your head, whatever okay. pops out. We'll just okay. go through them. Okay. What's your favorite book? My favorite book is the first book that popped into my head is Penin, which is a novel by Vladimir Nabokov. But it's a, a novel that I read um, when I was a senior in high school. And I remember it being um, the experience I had when I was done reading it was like of feeling like I like utter loss, not being able to like commune with those characters any longer. Um, that's the first book that popped in my head, but I have read others that I've loved since. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what's okay. So I found this on a Facebook post and I love it. And I, I've, I love reading about what everybody posted. So, and I haven't posted myself, but I, I have to, because I keep talking about it. Um, what's the number one best investment you made in 2021 under a hundred dollars? The best investment I made that was under a hundred dollars. I'm like currently looking around my room, trying to figure that out. <laughs> uh, in 2021 or in 2022 yeah. so far? In 2021. <laughs> 2021. Um, uh, You've been shopping well, already in 22. Wow, yes. already? Four, five days in? <laughs> well, I just actually got a um, a new French press and it's a metal French press, not a glass French press. So I was okay. going to say that, but that, it was actually $7 because I got it um, secondhand. And okay. um, instead, I'm actually going to say this, it's maybe not the best. For, okay, actually, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm cheating the $100 rule a little bit, but I am currently, I can't really show you because I'm using it, but I am I got this beautiful wooden um, like standing desk type thing. So you put it on top of a kind of normal desk height um, and it has a space for your keyboard and your mouse and your laptop. And it's like very pretty to look at because it's wood. I got it on Etsy and it has saved my back from all of its prior pandemic woes. So I highly recommend spending like at least a few hours of your day standing. So what, so what, where did you get it from? Spell it Etsy? Etsy, E-T-S-Y, which is like a, okay. a an online store for uh, artisans to sell their, their stuff. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's my, uh, that's my, you... my best purchase. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what's your number one advice for self-care? Um, I think recently what I've been trying to remind myself is that there is enough time um, and that I, I am in control of my own time. Um, And I think that's about reclaiming 
agency inside of my days and um, trying to remove myself from this feeling that I am like a, a, a victim to work or something as and instead feel like an agent of my time and I you know I decide when I want to begin work and when I want to end work and like of course obviously like there are times when I must begin work and there are times when I must end work but like inside of that that I I have agency which I think like just makes me feel more grounded and powerful inside of the way I use time and that like just to take an hour to do yoga or to take 30 minutes to take a walk and listen to a podcast makes the other hours of my day that much more efficient and so um this idea that we're there isn't enough time I think is like a myth that is really counterproductive so I'm trying to free myself of the time scarcity myth (laughs) um I like that I do yeah I'm learning that myself (laughs) yeah it's hard so it's good for reinforcements yeah yeah okay what's the first thing you do every morning when you wake up the first thing I do every morning when I wake up, when I'm being diligent is not look at my phone. Uh, the first thing I, <laughs> the first thing I do generally is turn on the hot water to begin to prepare my French press coffee, which I find to be like a very soothing start to every day um, because it's a very simple, but like regimented process in order to do it well, you need to follow steps in exactly the same way. And uh, that's kind of like my meditation at the beginning of the day. Mm, I was going to ask later if you meditated. <laughs> um, and I don't properly meditate, but coffee is okay. mine. Yeah. So speaking so, of coffee, who's mm-hmm. one person you want to have coffee with? Mm. If it could be anybody in the world, living or dead. Wow. One person I want to have coffee with living or dead. Anyone in the world. Um... I think because she just passed away, she's on my mind. Um, Bell Hooks oh, okay. um, is an activist and author and organizer who um, I had who had a big influence on me when I was in college, um, and I would love to sit down and and sort of try and soak up all of her her wisdom. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well then I want to soak up the wisdom that you learned from her. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a question. So Emma, you have, since you're so in control of your time. Well, that's questionable, but. Well, but (laughs) with all that you have going on, and I love to ask everyone this question, what, when, when you get up in the morning, what keeps you from hitting the snooze, like I hit the snooze button all the time, but what keeps you from hitting the snooze button and just getting up putting those slippers on and getting your day started what keeps you going yeah I think it's all of the people on the other end of the line you know like it's all of the people I work with and okay all of the people we're telling stories about and my family and my partner and you know like I think it's it's all of the people I'm a very socially and emotionally motivated person Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, it's really like the people that I know are out there counting on me is who okay. keeps me really motivated. Yeah. Okay. okay. What's your favorite podcast? Yeah. Oh, this is so tough. Um, I love <laughs> this American life for, which is like a classic, you know, this American life for long form, like nonfiction storytelling. Um, and um I love there's this podcast called appearances um which is made by a more indie um podcasting company called mermaid palace and it's this this podcast is by Sharon Mashiki and um she is um Iranian and Jewish and it's about being in her mid-30s and sort of uh reconciling her relationship with her mom her relationship with um, whether or not she is going to have a kid or wants to have a kid, her relationship with her love life. And it's like they what they call truth-based fiction. So it's it's about her life, but it's uh she plays all of 
the characters in the story. So it's like somewhat fictionalized. It's pulled a little bit. It's not documentary. It's not like she sits down and presses record with like her mom. Um, and it's it's crafted sort of with the precision of, of a fictional podcast. Um, and then I love, I'm a total sucker for um, WTF with Mark Marin, um, okay. his interview mm-hmm. podcast, which is, he's just like, he's kind of abrasive. <laughs> And like, he's very, very, very forward, but in a way that I think actually, sometimes I think is questionable, but like most of the time I actually think elicits, he's like relentlessly, he's relentless when he asks questions. And I think he actually elicits like more honesty out of people than some interviewers do, um, because he's like not afraid to ask the hard questions. Um, So that's, that's another podcast I love among so many code switch and um, there, yeah, there, are, I can't name them all. <laughs> well, I only asked for one. So that's yeah. okay. keep <laughs> yeah. going through the whole list of them all. So final question in the rapid fire questions. If you were to switch careers tomorrow, what would you try? I think I would either become a therapist or a journalist. Ooh, nice. nice. Are you constantly helping your friends with their problems? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know if that, I don't know about that, but I, I definitely, I just like talking to people about what they're dealing with emotionally. And um, I, I enjoy that. And I enjoy like helping people kind of tease out what it is that is like, plaguing them on a week by week basis. So I, I think I would enjoy it, but I, I think, I don't know what it would actually feel like to do that for eight hours a day. Like I can imagine it's quite emotionally heavy to like really carry that for a lot of people every day. Yeah, it, I'm sure it is. I worked at a law firm at, for like a month doing family law. So I was dealing with like a bunch uh, of divorcees and everything. And just the fighting over silverware and like the dog and visitation, you know, for the dog. And my mom bought that picture. So I'm taking it, but it was a gift to me. And it's like, oh my goodness, like just crying all the time. Yeah. If that I couldn't do family law, (laughs) it only lasted a month. (laughs) That's hard. So imagine being a therapist, listening to this day in and day out is, takes a toll on you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Shout out to all the therapists out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. seriously. You, you do great work. Yeah. So what got you into being an artist and being in the theater? That's where you started, correct? Yeah. Um, I think I really can uh, attribute so much of that to my parents and where I went to school. So I went to this school from third through 12th grade um, called St. Anne's, which is this small school in Brooklyn, New York. And um, they don't give grades <laughs> there. They, they were founded on a kind of radical, like pedagogical mission, which was to um, try and engage every student for the unique kind of set of neural pathways and like interests and skills that that they are and contain and that like the assigning of numbers and values to people's intellect and skill is like really detrimental to their self-esteem but also to like the motivation for learning and I think like in a dream world this this no grade system was set up to motivate learning for the sake of learning um uh and that I think that mission was really successful with me like I, I do feel like I was empowered to like really invest in the things that I loved and like invest a little bit less in trigonometry and like <laughs> and that there was um a lot of respect for for and a lot of like there were a lot of teachers who really saw you and what you were kind of what you what where your skills lay and where your strengths lay and uh, it's also a school that really like valued arts as highly as academics so um, when I was in third grade, I was in a classroom production of Gilgamesh, which is um, an ancient 
Mesopotamian story and I played Gilgamesh. So I played like a, a, a you know, like an ancient king at the age of eight. Um, and I, 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 I remember my crown fell off and I got a big laugh. And then the way I like reapplied the crown, I got another big laugh and I was like, ah, this feels sort of good <laughs> to make people laugh. So there was definitely like discovery. And the actor was said. born. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there was that. And then there was also like, I was, I was a big singer um, and I am, I am still a singer. And, oh. I, and I was in a very serious um, professional children's chorus growing up. I re- rehearsed like hours and hours and hours a week. And I think what I learned quickly between that chorus and like my parents bringing a lot of art into my life and my school caring a lot about art was, was how good the community is inside of art. Like I feel like in addition to having, discovering early that I like had something to say and that art was a really good way of releasing that either in the form of song or in the form of a play that I also, the people who were attracted to art making were people I loved in this and the fact that art making is a space that kind of demands vulnerability from you was like so I think even if I couldn't put words to it, it was like so legible to me at a young age and I was like well why would I participate in any of the things where we're not being 100% ourselves when in this space we seemingly are bringing like at least 99% of ourselves and the relationships I'm forming here are like seeming like like seem more authentic and more special and deeper mm-hmm. and the kind of collaborative act of making is like I think forges relationships on like any any other and I think that's like what I'm addicted to is the collaboration oh, okay. um and like the un the unusual nature of a lot of people who are in the arts I think there's such an interesting world of people who make make art that I can't I I want to know all of them and work with all of them um yeah everyone's unique and has such a interesting approach to everything and we're just special everyone's got their own craziness so have you been in any um musicals being a singer as well um I was not I was never really attracted to musicals. Like, I don't feel like the same caliber. I, I, I think the feeling I had when I was younger and that's starting to evolve was that um, the serious acting was not happening inside of musicals and the serious singing was not happening inside of musicals. It was like some combination of the two that compromised both. And I was not a dancer, but I'll say that. This is not my number one skill. Um, uh, so I was never- <laughs> Okay, well, if we never... combine the both of us, I'll do the dancing and you do the singing. <laughs> and then we perfect. can do a musical. <laughs> perfect, in our, in our yellow outfits. Um, yeah, I, I was more so doing straight plays, you know, plays with no music or plays with that are not musicals. Or I was doing- the genre of work that is called plays with music that are um, form are are a bit more of the kind of energy of a straight play but have music in them but the music generally doesn't contain a lot of like plot you know like in musicals there's a lot of like I'm going to love him for the rest of my life you know and like the there's a lot of information contained inside of the songs and like like the songs move the plot forwards Whereas in plays with music, sometimes they add and they add texture to the play or they add an emotional kind of energy to the play, but they don't move the story forward. Um, So long story short, I have been in musicals, but they are not, they are not the genre of work that I, and the the people who perform musicals, but the musical theater performers that are professional and um, on Broadway or on touring companies are so exquisitely and specifically masterful in the art of musical theater performing, which is an art in and of itself. And I was not trained to be a musical theater performer. I was trained to be a classical singer, really, and a straight actor. So mm-hmm. um, can it yeah. not, you, can, you couldn't, it doesn't transfer over I the skill set? 
It definitely has. And it's allowed for me to participate in some really interesting theater that I wouldn't have if I didn't have singing skill. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely don't, I wasn't trained to sing in the style of kind of more classic musical theater of like belting. Um, That's not really my, my singing style. So my voice is suited more so to like once the musical or like Hades town or musicals where the music is more kind of folk based and not so um, not as like brassy like hairspray or like um, uh, I don't know mama mia <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah but I, I the, the skills have transferred and have really like singing really benefited me a lot when I was acting more consistently singing was always the special skill that like I feel like singing is always what got me cast in some ways, even if I wasn't auditioning for straight musicals. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, I don't, I, I got deterred. What was the word? I don't know what the right word is, but I got scared with getting into, you know, theater because, you know, I did it in high school and everything. And then when I got to college, um, I went to, you know, I took the theater, you know, 101. Um, and the first play that they did was a musical, Hello, Dolly. And oh, since I no. can't sing, <laughs> I was <laughs> like, is this all it is? It's just musicals. I'm like, I will never get casted. I will always be just the runt walking around on stage and or doing the curtains and stuff. I will never get an opportunity. So it took a long time to find out that that wasn't the case. So I got out of acting because that just like I was discouraged. You know, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I thought that was I all think- that there was. I think that's the case for many people that they're like their <clears throat> high schools and colleges pre- predominantly did musical theater. And mm-hmm. I was just like lucky in that my high school did mostly did not do musical theater and my college did a kind of balance of the two. Um, okay. But college was really the first time I ever did a real musical. Like I was in the, I was in the ensemble of Hairspray when I was a freshman and I was like, oh, this is a whole nother genre and ball game. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm sorry you had that experience because I think it is, I think it is common that that's like what most institution educational institutions are doing theatrically is in yeah. musical theater. Did you have to get um because you said you was a singer, did you have to get um what is it? Um singing, a singing coach and things like that to do the musical? Yeah. Um, when I was, so I grew up in this chorus, which kind of fosters a very particular kind of singing where the intent is to blend with, you know, 50 other voices. So it's less about conceiving of some sort of a unique sound of your own and more okay. about your listening skill and musicianship, um, okay. which was super, super, super valuable. But then when I got older and like after I went through puberty, my voice sort of started okay. to change okay. and it got bigger (laughs) like it was a it was a thinner voice and an airier voice and then when I went through puberty it started to kind of like fill out and I could sing higher and all of a sudden I was making more sound and at that point I started going to um a voice teacher named Fred who is an incredible incredible instructor and we were working on mostly classical voice so singing like opera like arias and um and there was a point at which I considered applying to conservatory instead of like to classical singing conservatory instead of a liberal arts college. But I had this moment, I was at a certain point, I was like this, I don't want to be an opera singer. I don't like opera enough. That is the okay. path generally for this sort of, this kind of singing. And I'm interested in too many things. So I need to go to a college where they support you doing too many things <laughs> um, you, now would you be able to pleasure us and give us like a little sample or oh gosh <laughs> um, you knew that was coming <laughs> no I really I didn't um <laughs> it's like a classical I mean I, I something was done so long okay I guess we'll see what comes out um like Italian like my recording is getting a wacko um like Italian <laughs> kind of style classical the first thing that came to my mind is um <clears throat> oh, mio 
god. Oh my god. That was beautiful. Oh my god. Goodness. I wasn't Look. expecting that at all. I wow. wasn't expecting that either. I wasn't expecting it either, but a ghost came and and reminded me of my former my former voice. Um, wow. That was well, beautiful. Well, Antoinette, so you could have taken lessons and did theater I mean what was it Broadway with the voice coach right yeah yeah but like again you know not being from New York or Los Angeles like these are all things that you don't know until you know so like I didn't know there was such thing as a vocal coach like I had did chorus also in she's like eighth grade or whatever and I I sound like a cat you know like a dog like the dog you know but they're (laughs) You know, like it's my friends in high school used to turn up the radio so I would sing and they would just laugh at me. (laughs) So, yeah, I shouldn't, I should not be singing (laughs) in the shower. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's when I do it. But that was beautiful. Oh, my goodness. It was. Woo! Yeah. Thank you. Blew me away. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I think you're ready. So what kind? <laughs> Go ahead. No, <laughs> I definitely would need a vocal court, a vocal coach, right? I think everyone can. You know, I sort okay. of believe that unless you're tone deaf, okay, everyone can learn to sing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you're tone deaf? <laughs> yeah, no, I would be like. Well, what? I think I harmonize, but no one else does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't sing. You know no. what? As long as you can find the music in you, doesn't matter what anyone else says true that's my little message for you (laughs) okay well how did you get into producing then if you were yeah or was that just like a natural transition yeah um so for the first uh four-ish years following graduating so I went to so I, I grew up in New York City went up to Dartmouth College for my um for college for my education there and then I came back to Brooklyn somewhat immediately because I knew I wanted to do theater um and at that point right out of college I my the feeling I had was I wanted to try and pursue acting um in theater and so I went to Williamstown Theater Festival which is this wild and energetic um summer theater festival exactly what it sounds like in Williamstown Massachusetts where New York City theater kind of displaces itself to this like beautiful setting amidst the mountains and um, hundreds of people get together and 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 make and make theater for eight weeks and um, on the main stage of the shows are you know starring Marissa Tomei and like other you know huge stars and they're kind of Broadway off-Broadway caliber shows and then um, on like the second stage, you know, of of the of the festival is a whole uh, series of plays by young artists. Um, so they have programs for younger artists. Those are now all under construction because there was a lot of pushback against them um, during the pandemic because there's a lot of unpaid labor that happens during these fellowships and internships, as is familiar to I think all of us who are in the arts. Um, and so uh, I, I was an apprentice, it's called an acting apprentice at that festival. And I had a good, lot of good luck with the casting that summer um, and, and had the good fortune of performing for the majority of the summer, which is not always your experience as an acting apprentice, um, despite the name of the program. Um, and I think that gave me the sort of confidence because it, it was felt like it was New York City adjacent. So that gave me the confidence to, to, to step into New York City and say, I am going to do this thing. Um, and Williamstown gave me a really huge community of both, you know, people who were really established in, in theater already and my and peers, people who were also 22 and wanting to, to do theater and particularly like many of the people who attend the festival are interested in working on new plays. So plays where you're sitting in the rehearsal room with the playwright and it is evolving as the rehearsal process is unfolding. Um, and 
I, my sophomore year-ish of college, this great off-Broadway theater near theater workshop came up to the college and developed new plays with us. Um, and at that point I learned sort of, oh, new plays are the thing that I want to focus on because I hadn't, to that point, I think I, um, that was the point at which I understood sort of how creatively and collaboratively involved an actor could be um, in a theater making process because in a new play space, if you are the first person who's ever inhabited a character, you're, you're responding to the text as it's evolving and the character sometimes evolves to meet you and how you are and you can give the playwright feedback and it's just like more highly collaborative than I think um, the experience of working on a, an old play where the player is dead and the text is set and um, it is, it is, um, it's not evolving. So anyways, long, long story short, I moved to New York City. I was acting for a number of years. I had a great time acting and, and had a lot of, found a really robust community of people looking to make work like the work I was interested in I um but I never really aggressively attacked the the audition circuit um and I never really aggressively attacked the representation <laughs> search the search for an agent and a manager I was really making work with people who had seen me in something or knew me already and I was being invited to audition or I was being just offered roles. And um, I think on some level I was fighting a fear um, and like putting, you know, putting myself out there in the way that I think you really have to as, as an actor to get seen beyond your circle. Um, and I also was fighting this, like, I guess this, this kind of recurring feeling inside of rehearsal rooms where I was like really concerned with how the process was organized. And I wanted to know why the director chose the set that they did. And I wanted to know why the breaks were being taken at 105 and not 115. Right. And I wanted to like, and I, all of a sudden I sort of like, not all of a sudden, like gradually I, I noted in myself like an interest in the bigger picture. Um, and also like theater is a very underfunded form. Um, and so there is a lot of time spent where the artists involved in the project are making very, very, very little money in what they're doing. And so I think like that, the money, the pay needs to increase. And like that, that conversation is happening and has been happening through the pandemic, but simultaneously the respect involved in the theater making process, I think has to be like the, at an all time high and the care for the artists involved has to be at an all time high because you're not making a ton of money. So the least that we can do as collaborators is, is really take care of each other. And so I guess I just started to feel very strongly about that having been inside of so many processes as an actor. And a friend of mine named Katie Lindsay, who's a theater director was like, I'm directing this new musical. Speaking of musicals, I am directing this brand new musical. It's called Red Emma and the Mad Monk. Your name has nothing to do with what I'm asking you, but will you <laughs> will you consider producing this? Like I keep hearing you saying you're interested and I think you'd be good at it. Why don't you you do it? And I was like, oh God, uh, I don't know. I have no experience. I, I, I don't know where to begin. And Katie was like, well, look, I have experience producing. The composer has experience producing. The playwright has experience producing. So you'll be the lead producer, but we will help you. We will orient you as to like what it is that this job entails. And I think the hardest thing the first time around is you have no capacity for anticipatory thinking. Because if you've never done the thing before, it's harder to anticipate. You know, if you've produced a play 10 times, you know that early in the process, you need to have a conversation with the actors union yes. and tell them that this is happening. And for how many weeks and apply for, you know, a certain union level of, of performance yep. and get approval. And if you've never done it before, then you probably don't know you're supposed to do that. You wait till the last minute, you apply at the last minute, you have no track record. As a, you know, so there are things that like <laughs> you, you over time, you know, okay, this is, 
there are certain formulas to processes like this, these things need to happen at certain junctures in every process. The way they happen is different for every show, but I think that there, there are certain things that are unchanging from show to show. So I didn't have a lot of that anticipatory skill set, but I learned a lot on the fly and I love learning as I work. It's like the most, I think, thrilling kind of the way of working for me. And sometimes when I find myself on a job where I'm not learning constantly, I get bored very quickly. Um, and so I produced this musical and uh, the New York Times gave it a critic's pick and it was like a thrilling experience because it was a group of young artists who were making this new ambitious thing. And everyone I think who participated in it had a really good time and was really, really proud of it. And uh, I, I loved it. I loved the experience of producing. Yeah. Um, I loved the being the kind of line of communication between so many people. I loved um, having the opportunity to be thoughtful about how the show is marketed to the world. I loved having the opportunity to structure, um, to like assert what I believe was like right and wrong and how you use artists' time. Um, deciding that we were going to like one of the big decisions I feel like I made per the counsel of a, a producer friend of mine who's older than me Caroline Gart shout out she's so amazing um <laughs> she she basically advised that you try and make the total totality of your budget without counting on box office so she was like you should have if your budget is $35,000 you need to earn $35,000 in, in generally like raised income. So like generally through fundraising and you shouldn't be counting on box office to pay any of your fundamental expenses. And so we, we approached the, the budget that way. And as a result, we, we did make a bunch of money on box office. And as a result, we had surplus funds and we were able to take those surplus funds and divide them and pay all of the artists more Oh, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. That was was a really rewarding experience and has not really happened again since. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think that was like particularly lucky, but I also... Well, that's um, the way we want it to happen. (laughs) Yes. Totally. And totally. And I also think that like, I was very lucky to be working with lead artists who who felt that the money should go back to the artists. Um, And... Mm -hmm. and there was such a robust sorry experience of community there and I was hooked and I that the rest is history yeah wow well being you know artists like you're saying and how we generally you know work for free for a while um what's your side hustle what do you do to pay the bills like what's your thing or how many things do you have (laughs) for a while I was um so right now, I actually, I kept producing and acting simultaneously, and that was kind of awesome and insane. And then the pandemic hit, live theater came to an absolute dead halt, and I pivoted to working on digital work of various varieties, um, found the digital theater that was happening incredibly uninspiring, so I sort of, like, pivoted my attention to different mediums that have are built to live digitally like film and podcasts um Mm -hmm. and I started working on my first podcast which I can tell you more about with Pleasure Machine and then oh yeah um, we gotta talk about about, that next yeah and about (laughs) six months or so after I started working on that I was approached by um a director that I I knew at the time as a theater director who um, you know, I'd always, I'd heard her name many times. I, I, I'd always wanted to meet her. Her name is Arpita Mukherjee. She uh, emailed me and said, a friend of mine recommended you. Um, we are looking to hire a full-time producing director for my company. It's our very first full-time hire, but we, you know, we have a lot of TV and film um, offers on our, on our plate and we're about to grow because of that. And so for the first time we have the financial capacity and really like the operational need to hire someone full time. So I was hesitant to, to take full-time work because I had 
other projects still in the midst. I was still running the arts residency. I was working on this podcast, but I also, we were still in the midst of the pandemic. I was really inspired by Arbita and by her um, inclination towards building out this company to, to be so hybrid across mediums and make theater and film and TV. And I also felt privately for myself. I was like, I think it would be very healthy for me to grow beyond theater because while I, it is kind of like my first love and I think ultimately that the art form that I am, I feel most strongly about, it's also really, as I said, underfunded industry. So it's, it's really hard to make money. It's really, really hard to make a yeah. living. Yeah. And obviously there is more money in film. Um, so, I mean, not, <laughs> it takes time to get there, but there is more of it. Um, and so I decided to take on this full-time job. So now like you're meeting me right now in a moment where I, in, in, a, in a kind of new phase of my life where I have a full-time job that is the thing I wanna be doing. Like I have a full-time job as a producer. Um, but congratulations, that's yeah, congratulations. amazing. That's, it sounds like you're on your way to making it or you made it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's a constantly evolving equilibrium. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, occasionally I'm like, oh, I'm not meant to be in a full-time job. And then other times I feel quite grateful and, 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 um, I, I feel grateful for the opportunity to slow. I'm not really slowing down because the full-time job is very busy, but I am narrowing my focus to one thing, which I think is very um, healthy for me because my instinct is always kind of to do too much at once. And I was really yeah. sick of the feeling of like being totally stretched. But prior to this job, my money jobs were grant writing um, and some theater administration stuff. Um, like so I had managed to get some part-time work uh, and on the fundraising side of things, on the producing side of things at various, various arts organizations. And um, early on, I worked at the New York Times for a year, like a year out of school as a video producer. Um, and through that, I made relationships with a couple of people who hired me again for various kind of like short-term projects. But basically up until about six months ago for four or five years, I was consistently living inside of a patchwork of jobs um so like a 10-hour job here a 10-hour a week job here I tried at a certain point to take jobs that like that uh, that allowed me to work from anywhere um even before the pandemic so when the pandemic actually started I was fortunately already set up with jobs that were meant to be done from my computer so um that's the yeah that's my job story so I, so I saw a trailer of running, right? That is running. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> just the artistry in that. Like I watched it like three, four, five times. I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh good. Running that, and it makes sense now after speaking with you, just the thought, the artistry that was in it, like from when he was riding and he, and he had this box. It was just so just thinking outside because I'm one that likes to think outside the box and just the way that it was put together and just the message, the little boy in the bag and just mm -hmm. just everything put together, the lighting, just it was perfect. Like, it, please. Wow. Talk about it's just so good <laughs> to hear you say that. Yes, um, please talk about well, it. I mean, shout out to Joel, who is uh, somewhere behind the yes, scenes right yes. now, and is the reason I'm I'm on this podcast. But uh, Joel was the first AD, and also like secretly, you know, like my associate yes. producer, or whatever. I think he yes. earned, so he, he got he gets all the titles on this one. Um, but he <laughs> yes. running is uh, I'll tell you, I'll give you give you the kind of logline. But running is um, an autobiographical experimental film by okay. written by and starring Danny Pudi who I don't know if you've watched Community or Mythic okay. Quest but those are two shows that I've learned since working with Danny have an unbelievable fan base especially Community mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and the film is about his so 
basically when he was a young kid, um, his, his father left the home and he didn't have a, much of a relationship with his father until he had right. a son himself. Um, and as he was starting to kind of build this relationship anew, he saw his dad, you know, a number of times over the, the, the time that elapsed between when he was a kid and when he was a father, became a father himself. But um, he started to forge this, this relationship with his father and then his father passed away um, right. about a, a couple of years into, into reconceiving of that relationship. And so the film is a, a journey that Danny is prompted to go on by his son, wherein yeah. he yeah. is trying to put together a story of the father he didn't know so well. And along the way, he is engaging his mom, his dad's former roommate, his dad's former coworker, and trying to simultaneously soak up all these stories of his father and kind of sort through his own grief. And uh, he's, he, you know, at many points in the film is sort of racing to find answers of who he is and where he okay. comes from and what his father's story is. But I think the lesson he learns along the way is that to ask these questions is the most important thing. The answers are less important, um, but to be curious and, and make yourself vulnerable enough to, to like engage a path that you're not so familiar with is, is kind of the most important journey you could, you could go on. And, and it's also sort of a challenge to Danny to right. engage the, this grief and this kind of darkness. And, you know, he's, you'll see in this film and then, and you also, you know, immediately when you meet him in real life, um, he is like the most playful, exuberant, yeah. positive person you could possibly encounter. And this is a hard and sad and vulnerable and important and complicated story. And so for him to challenge himself to go to that place, is it's, it's very meaningful. Um, and Arpita Mukherjee, who runs Hypocrite Productions, where I'm producing director, is the director of the film. Okay. Um, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Like, now, was it supposed to be, because I'm kind of, because I'm, I'm looking at something else of yours called Pleasure Machine, but with running, I think the son said, tell me a funny story about your dad. Was that exactly meant to be kind of like a comic relief or just the son's, innocent like well dad tell me a funny story about your father and he's sitting there looking at him looking at the box and he's like what's in the box you know like <laughs> just that that shift is like wow so answer, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I think I think that I think you picked up on exactly the kind of energetic shift that that kicks off the, the whole <laughs> film Yes. Um, you know, I think like you, you, the film begins and you think you are being dropped inside of a quotidian, you know, mm -hmm. everyday interaction between Danny and his son or his mm -hmm. son, who is clearly like a very inquisitive and asks us a lot of questions, mm -hmm. is asking a lot of questions. And then the questions start to be about his identity, the son's identity and, mm -hmm. and Danny's identity and who is Danny and where does he come from? Where's his father? And right. And, um, and then he asks this question, which I think just the prompt sends Danny into this whole journey of wanting yes, to find yes. this funny story for his son, mm -hmm. but it, the journey becomes something so much bigger than that. It, like the yeah, prompt is yeah. to find the funny story and then the journey becomes mm -hmm. uh, a reconciliation with the complexity of self and family and, <laughs> and grief and time and all of the big hard things. It just had all so that spoiler up and like uh, go oh, what? she gonna give us a spoiler? No, I was just no, ah! no, no. <laughs> it, it, it was just so it was just like oh my goodness, like so well put together. Just it, it was just very well, just complimented. Oh, good. I'm really yeah. I mean, all the credit there goes to Arpita and and Kabir, our editor, okay. and Sten Tadashi Olsen, our DP, who has such uh, artistry and work that he does um and I know that I've frozen let me turn off my camera and turn it back on there we go mm -hmm. um and 
Um, and then of course, like the incredible crew and production designer and costume designer and all of the artists that made this film possible. But, but the artistry I think you're seeing in the trailer is really a, a mind meld of Danny and Kabir and Arpita and Stan um, and Evan, our, our composer and Sarah, our colorist. And it was just, I'm yeah. glad that it struck you. So yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. I got the feeling that it was the boy, his son is. Yeah. It's him asking his dad, like mm-hmm. that's really him and what he wants to find out because he wants to find right. out who he is. Yeah, so he's on this journey. I love that read of it. <laughs> and was there a boy in the back seat? Yeah, 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 it was the son. It was the son because he was like, what's in the box? And I was like, oh. There and was a voice. I don't think I saw a person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because I remember him. He was like, what's in the box? I remember because it was a box sitting there in my... I mean, because I've been looking at yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think it was that's, that's up to the viewer. I mean, he is in the backseat and, and we don't get to see him because of various things, but um, yeah. oh. he is there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So maybe my okay. mind went, that's good because I'm seeing. I mean, that's the hope. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. It was okay. Yeah. So now also I was excited about when I'm looking on your Instagram and it says, pleasure machine it's a non-episode audio thriller and it um collides with sophie treadswell uh treadwell's expressionist drama machino mm-hmm. with adrian yeah right so pleasure uh pleasure activism if i'm saying it correctly but i was intrigued mm-hmm. and enthralled by that so please i mean speak about that i mean uh, unless yeah. i job. Um, Antoinette because I know Antoinette had a question but I'm just excited about your work so no go for it yeah uh, so um, Pleasure Machine is um, a project I started before I started working with Hypocrite it was you know it it was a freelance you know one of my kind of many independent producing projects Um, and Pleasure Machine is is as you said a nine episode audio thriller um, or I think for folks who listen to podcasts, fictional podcasts mm-hmm. will mean, or narrative podcasts will mean a lot to them. For people who don't, audio thriller seems to mean more to them. Um, about an artist who is trying to hold on to their integrity and mm-hmm. um, relationships under the pressures of capitalism. Um, and spoiler alert, doesn't go so well. Um, (laughs) um, um, and it really, to, to zoom, zoom back out a little bit, this director named Tara Elliott came to me and she was really obsessed with these two texts, which is mocking all the, the Sophie Treadwell play that is, uh, I talk about in that Instagram post and pleasure activism, which is a book of essays, um, written by and compiled by Adrian Murray Brown, who's a very successful and notable activist and um, organizer and, and social justice thinker. Um, and basically Tara was feeling really oppressed by the pandemic as, so, as we all were and feeling like her body had been rendered completely irrelevant. Um, and um, it, was, it was both rendered irrelevant and like was rendered a kind of site of infection and, and like violence. And, and it felt like our bodies were kind of, um, yeah, they, they, were, they were relegated to, to being something that was kept inside and away from everyone else. Um, and so Tara was feeling like the theater work that was happening during the pandemic was not engaging her physical body the way that like normal theater does, where like, you have to walk to the theater and you sit in the seat and you are next to a hundred other bodies and they're breathing mm-hmm. and laughing and crying next to you. And all of a sudden it's like a whole, it's a physical experience consuming the theater. Um, and she was having kind of, she was having that experience only when, when listening to, to podcasts during the pandemic, she was feeling like that was sort of like engaging her more than the digital theater that was happening. Um, and Adrian Marie Brown's whole philosophy of pleasure activism is, is um, essentially that, um, in order for us to make change in the world, it, it has to be a pleasurable experience. So like one of the kind of most radical things you can do for yourself and also 
she's a black queer woman who's writing primarily for a black queer audience and so these tools are really for that audience first and foremost but it's these she's basically offering the guidance that in order to to live radically and make change that you yourself need to you need to find a pleasure practice yourself Um, accept yourself accept who you are Mm -hmm. Yeah, accept yourself, take care of your body, listen to your Mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. Um, And she is very kind of um, somatically focused, just like she's very, she is very physically focused. So her, she spends, um, she she encourages a lot of meditation and breathing exercises and um, and stretching and, and exercises that are intended to kind of get you in touch with what your body is trying to tell you. because you know, often we store we store stress in our body, we store mm-hmm. um, anxiety in our body, we store hunger in our body, we store anger in our body, and like it's yeah. all there if you pay attention. Um, yes. Anyways, so so, and then Machina is about this woman who is oppressed in the early 1900s, and we wanted to put the two pieces into conversation with each other. And a question we sort of asked ourselves was like what would have happened to this lead character in Machinal, who is this oppressed woman who basically um, is driven to kill her husband because she feels so trapped inside of her, these like patriarchal capitalistic, you know, wow. uh, structures. And yeah. what happens if you give this character the liberatory practices of Adrienne Marie Brown and we gathered a group of three writers together, <laughs> put these two texts in the space and asked these big questions about how to maintain a sense of freedom and agency and artistry inside of all of these systems. And we traveled far, far, far away from this play Machinal and landed up this story about this sound artist who gets an offer from a big corporation to basically license all of her work. And it makes her feel like she has this they have this instinct, sorry, they use they them pronouns. Um, they have this instinct that this is not gonna align with their values, but they're in a position where they really need money. They're mm-hmm. like, they, there are some familial circumstances that make it such that they really need this this cash. And so they they sign the deal and I guess I shouldn't say so much, but but um their instincts were were not wrong. Um, And so Pleasure Machine is nine episodes. Uh, Right now it's finishing up its run on Colt Core, which is the the company we worked with to produce it. C-O-L-T-C-O-E-U-R.org. And it's available for behind a consumer pay platform right now. Um, But come late next year, it will be available more widely on Spotify and all the other apps but right now we're we're this has been kind of like a limited release and then we're going to do a wider release later in 20 until the fifth so we have until the 15th right yeah I see you have until okay. you have until the 15th to buy the I think it's actually the 18th now but the, it's mid, okay. mid-January is basically when, okay um we're no longer gonna have the podcast on sale okay so in speaking of podcasts I know if I can make mention, um, I'm just excited mm-hmm. about everything that you're doing. Emma. <laughs> Speaking of podcasts, you have your own podcast, right? Me? Yes. Don't you have a, no. a podcast? Or this is the podcast. Oh, it's that this one. It's this, this is the podcast. The pod- yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I produced okay. this and, okay. and was very, very involved in the in the, okay. in the crafting of the story, but it's not like a podcast of this variety where it's it's not okay. an interview-based podcast. It's a fictional podcast. So it's like, okay. It's more okay. similar to a TV show. It's the but new it's radio. <laughs> the new radio. Yeah. Yes. So I guess that's um, our homework that uh, Antoinette and I will sit here and- You gotta um, go listen to it. Yeah. Antoinette is your treat with the wine. <laughs> so, that's yeah, after the 12-week year. <laughs> yeah. So no, we, we got to do this before the 15. So uh, it's your treat. <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you Rose. Thank, thank you, you. with a and bottle of wine yeah. right yeah this would be great with a I bottle of watch this with a bottle <laughs> of wine oh, yes yeah. yeah it's just a listening experience but do listen with a bottle of wine yes how okay. long are the episodes they're like 20 minutes okay oh okay yeah, minutes no, time time. yeah okay cool okay, yeah great yeah well and yeah, there, i've heard from friends yeah. that they're very binge it's very binge worthy 
So okay, like, right. we okay. were releasing it kind of progressively. And then I think I had friends who waited for all nine episodes to be out to then start to listen because they knew they would want yeah, it. Yeah, I think I would have done that too. <laughs> oh, and I'm like, I, yeah. I'm like, I gotta, just gotta get it over with. <laughs> yeah. so, and before um, we wrap, wrap up, I just want to say, I forgot to tell everyone how they can watch Running, which is obviously the other yes. good project. Um, yes. Oh, I didn't think it was released you can yet. Go, it's not, but you can get oh, your okay. tickets now for this. We're, we're doing a limited showing. It's actually weirdly similar to how the podcast release worked, even though these are two completely distinct operations, but okay. we are doing a very limited showing of it um, on a streaming platform called Stellar from January 22nd to Stop. February 26th. And you can get okay. tickets on yeah. Hypocrite's website. So that's H-Y-P-O-K-R-I-T-N-Y-C.org. You can okay. probably just Google hypocrite running Danny and um, you'll probably to... find tickets. Okay. Uh, and and the, yeah, wherever the, else we can find you um, and how we can get in touch with you yeah, and you can, for producing a play or a film. Yes. Yeah, you can uh, find me at uh, Emma Orm on Instagram. I, I have a Twitter, but I don't really use it. So I, if you DM me there, it might sit in my DMs for a little bit before you get a response. So Instagram <laughs> okay. is probably your best bet. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. it at M Orm, E-M-M-A-O-R-M-E. Orm. Um, you- not Ormy. Orm. Not Ormy, not Orme. <laughs> Orm. <laughs> I'm sure you were teased a lot as a child about or that. me, Emmy or me. <laughs> I love no, it. I actually think I was saved a lot of it. It was mostly I, I kind of liked all the varieties. I think it's funny. Because uh-huh. to me uh-huh. it seems like, oh, of course you would pronounce it orm, but so I think it's always funny when people call it like orme, which to me sounds like Hermes, yeah. but obviously that's not what it sounds like. <laughs> orme. Um, orme. Exactly. <laughs> Herme. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. I really thank you for being here and sharing yes. all your wonderful insight there. You have so much more yes. to share and I would love to learn more, but we just yes. don't have the time. I know. Um, we don't want to hold you up. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me on. And, um, I hope I didn't blab on too much. I know. I'm no, long way. No, it's, ins- no <laughs> it's insightful. It. It's insightful our listeners, that they're inspiring, especially the younger people that's coming behind us, it's like yeah. you give them hope for mm-hmm. everything, a singer, an actress, and a producer, like your experience, like you didn't have any experience, but you got experience going through the experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. But you give Absolutely. hope to those that's coming behind you and me. So it's very totally. educational and informative. So I, I want to thank you. You got my juices flowing because I'm always yes. thinking. So, so oh, before good. I close, just one last question because Renee just reminded me. We all, since we do like to, you know, thank you for being our leading lady today. We want to promote our new leading ladies, yes. the future generation. So, what's something that you wish you had learned along the way when you were younger that you know now yes. that you would either tell someone just starting out or what you would have t- a piece of advice that you would have told yourself when you were younger? Yes. Um, so many, but I think um, no question is too stupid. And I, and I really like, I really mean that. I think that one of the biggest challenges you fight as a young person in this industry is imposter syndrome and, and the assumption that everyone who has more experience than you knows all of the answers and, and you just, you don't because you haven't done it for enough right. time. And the, the truth is that either you and that more experienced person are actually on a more even playing field than you think, because we're all out here learning all the time and we're all out here improvising all the time. Or if they do know more than you about the thing, then in order to be a responsible and more capable participant in the thing you're doing, you need to know the answers to your questions. So ask the questions because it doesn't, I think the thing I get really stuck in is this idea that it makes me look bad if I don't know the answer to a thing. But I think 
what what looks worse is if you don't ask the question and exactly. you make a misstep that you could have avoided by asking the question. Asking so I think like give your yeah, give yourself the grace of of asking questions when you have them and trust that they are good questions, they are valid mm-hmm. and they should be answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and um yeah, respect yourself. If you feel in your body that you are being disrespected, you don't have don't and listen listen and and either have a conversation with that person or observe that the situation is not going to change and mm-hmm. go put yourself in a situation where you will be respected like you should be yeah. and you are there is not a point in your path in this industry at which you start to deserve respect you deserve respect from okay. the moment you begin yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so never don't don't feel like that's something you have to earn it's something you've earned just by existing so yeah um that's the other thing I'd say is like respect yourself and demand the respect you deserve yes thank you yeah Thank you. That's good uh, reaffirmation or whatever the word yeah. is uh, to uh, confirm, you know, for a lot of people, including myself. So yeah. thank you. Thank Same. You. I have to tell myself this every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks to all of you for tuning into the podcast this week. For more of our content, you can follow us on our social media at HeapEnt. That's H E E P E N T. And if you have feedback, suggestions, questions, collab pitches, or anything you want to tell us, reach out to our team at HeapEnt at gmail.com. Until next time, stay tuned. Thanks, Emma. Thank you for having me.